Tonight's talk is on the Ten Spiritual Perfections. We all know that one of the main ways that we entertain ourselves as yogis is in judging our practice, trying to figure out if it's good practice or if it's bad practice. So it may be interesting to take a few moments to reflect on what good practice is or what we consider good practice to be. And I think there's two main ways that we as yogis determine whether our practice is good or not. One of the ways is we think that if our practice is pleasant, then it's good practice, and if it's unpleasant, then it's bad practice. I hope we've uh, debunked that theory by now. (laughs) The other way that we often judge our practice is by our perceived uh, level of concentration. I'm really fascinated by how we can start to judge our practice by how many breaths we can follow in a row or how how much our mind wanders. I mean, think about it. That's how we judge our practice, by how many breaths we can follow in a row. And when you really think about it, it seems like a crazy way to judge our practice. Concentration is certainly useful. It's part of our mind development. But it's a tool. It's not the goal of a pasana practice. So concentration, focusing the mind is a tool we use to unify our minds and to help us see more clearly. And yes, in that sense, it is good to develop. But you also may have noticed that concentration isn't a good place to rely on or to judge your practice from. It's very fickle. It changes, changes easily. It may change varying on the time of day or what stimulus uh, comes in. A note on the board can disrupt our concentration for hours. So just to consider concentration as uh, a judge of our practice is a pretty limited way to look at our practice. I mean, how is the number of breaths that you can follow here going to help you when you lead this retreat? What other qualities may be important to develop on the spiritual path? So another framework for looking at your practice can be the development of the ten paramis, or the ten spiritual perfections. And these are ten qualities of a fully developed Buddha. These qualities are generosity, morality or virtue, renunciation, patience, Truthfulness, resolution or determination, loving kindness, metta, equanimity, effort, and wisdom. These are qualities that are valued by all spiritual traditions. So there may be times in your meditation when you think that it's pretty much a waste of time. Your mind wanders, you bring it back to the breath, it wanders again, you bring it back to the breath again, and it seems like nothing is happening. And you may ask yourself, 
What can I possibly be accomplishing here? Even if you don't enter deep and blissful meditative states, during your practice here, you are still developing these ten perfections. The Pali roots of this word parami suggest going towards the highest, the supreme, towards perfection. Through developing the paramis, we're nurturing the qualities of a heart and mind of a fully awakened being. So in this way, you could say that developing the paramis, we're connecting with our Buddha nature, our Buddha-like strengths. The Chinese character for paramita, which is a form of the word parami, means crossing over to the other shore. You need these paramis to practice. You need these paramis to cross over to the other shore. It's said that one's depth in meditation is directly related to the strength of their paramis. When someone goes deep quickly in meditation, we will sometimes say they have good paramis. So the paramis strengthen our ability to cross from the shore of our pain and suffering to the shore of freedom, of liberation, a central part of practice. The Buddha, or the Buddha-to-be at that time, is said to have spent thousands upon thousands of lifetimes developing these paramis. Actually, the um, amount of time given is four incalculable ages and 100,000 eons. And and an incalculable age is, if you had a mountain a mile high, and once every hundred years a bird flew over it with a silk handkerchief, the amount of time it would take that mountain to erode. (laughs) Incalculable eon, (laughs) or incalculable age, 100,000 eons and four incalculable ages. I think the point is, it was a long time. It's said that one in, in one of his previous existences, the Bodhisattva, or the Buddha-to-be, lived as a hermit named Sumedha. And this hermit had a vision of how many beings suffered in darkness during a time when there wasn't a Buddha, and how many people needed the assistance of a Buddha to find freedom. So he was moved by this, and he made a vow that he would renounce his own enlightenment in that lifetime and spend however long it took, however many incalculable eons, to develop the qualities of a fully enlightened Buddha. And then he would be able to bring this light to the world and lead others to liberation. So there's a book of uh, tales called the Jataka Tales, which describe many lifetimes of the Buddha as he was developing these qualities and these lifetimes where he um, was born as an animal or a king, a priest, hermit, businessman, as he developed these qualities and their stories of tremendous courage and generosity, compassion and virtue. And he couldn't become a Buddha until he developed these qualities perfectly. So I think the Buddha to be his journey through lifetimes is concrete evidence that our practice is not just about whether we stay on the breath, 
and that if the Buddha needed to develop these qualities, so do we. Now, each one of these paramis could easily justify uh, its own talk, and we have given talks about some of them, and we'll give talks, some more talks about some of them. Um, but I would like to look at a specific slice of these um, qualities, and the slice of them that I want to look at is how they support your practice here on retreat and how being on retreat you're developing these qualities. And hopefully have time for a few inspiring stories about people who um, have developed these qualities. So you may want to notice if one particular parami, one or two, seems like your strengths. And you may also want to notice if there's one or two paramis that it would be useful for you to practice with, to make part of your practice. So the first two paramis of dana or generosity, and sila, or morality, these two um, are considered foundations of practice for lay people. It's often said that the practice for lay people has three parts, dana, sila, and bhavana, or generosity, morality, and mind development. So generosity and uh, morality each a third of the path for lay people. And the development of these two qualities is considered essential for our freedom. So generosity, what does that have to do with our liberation? What does it have to do with our practice? I want us to try a little experiment. I'm actually going to give you permission to think. So I'd like you to just close your eyes for a moment. (laughs) Open your mind, close your eyes. (laughs) And remember a time that you were generous, that you did something kind for somebody or you gave them something. Bringing to mind that act of generosity. So now I'd like you to just take a moment and feel the texture of your mind, your heart and mind, when you remember that. What does your mind feel like remembering that act of generosity? Okay, now you can stop thinking. (laughs) So does that seem like the kind of mind that would be easy to practice with? Does that seem like the kind of mind that may actually settle down and concentrate and see clearly? Generosity makes our hearts and minds light and happy. And happy minds concentrate most easily. It's said that happiness is a proximate cause of concentration. So if we remember times that are that we were generous, our Minds lighten and are more pliable and ready for practice. And if we are generous often, we create a certain force of lightness in our hearts and minds.
Another reason that generosity is so important for practice is that it is a concrete manifestation of the root of freedom. And that's non-attachment, non-clinging. So when we learn not to cling to things, to personal possessions, we lessen the force of clinging in the mind. And when we make a habit of giving, we weaken the force of craving in the mind. So giving is an antidote to craving, to attachment, to egoism, to I, the story always about I. When we give, we take our place in the web of life. Whether we realize it or not, we are constantly giving. We're constantly and continuously generous. We're so connected, how could we not be? The air that we breathe, we share that. I like to look at my food at lunch and do a little contemplation that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, looking at the food, realizing that the whole universe is in that plate when you make all the connections between the sun and the rain and the people who planted it and all the people who supported them. And if you just keep extending, the whole universe is in the plate. That sense of we're always giving, we're all connected. I like to contemplate the fact that we are here in this hall together because of the generosity of countless people over centuries. So really perfecting generosity is seeing this, knowing this, nurturing it. You are all here developing dana in a very important way. Perhaps the biggest gift we can offer the world is our spiritual development, the development of our hearts and our minds. And as we become happier and more peaceful through our spiritual practice, we can offer that to the world, that happiness and that peace. As we become steadier and more understanding, we can offer this gift to others. As we learn ways to become free of suffering, we can offer freedom to those around us. Gandhi said, I believe if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains that much. So being here practicing is a gift. Perhaps when your energy flags on retreat, you can remember that. Even if you didn't come here with the idea of reducing suffering in the world and increasing peace in the world by working on your own heart and mind, it is what you're doing. Just being here is an act of generosity. There, I'd like to end this section on generosity with a quote that I found in a magazine called Gnosis Magazine by somebody named E.J. Gold. I don't even know this person. But this, um, I find this a very interesting uh, Uh, Meditation on Generosity. So E.J. Gold says, 
There's a kind of school where you arrive saying, what can I get? How is this any good for me? You see, I had workshops. I figure I must have had 20,000 people in my workshops in 37 years. Most people asked, what is this going to do for me? My answer is always the same. This is not for you. It's not for your benefit. You're not supposed to get anything out of this at all. If you do, you'll be very fortunate, because I never have. All you do is give. That's the whole thing. You just give and give and give. And it costs you to give. And you even have to pay to give. And in the end, you have nothing. Just nothing. Now, if you can handle that, you belong here. I find that to be an inspirational quote. So let's move on to the second parami of sila, or morality, virtue, ethical living. This is um, also one of the most important and beautiful gifts that we can offer to the world. From the Buddha. There is a case where a disciple of the noble ones, that's you all, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from lying, abstains from taking intoxicants. In doing so, he or she gives freedom from danger freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, he or she gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is a gift, a great gift, original long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that is not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and is unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and priests. A great gift, original, long-standing, ancient. Wherever the Buddha preached, he always stressed the importance of good moral conduct as a foundation to practicing meditation and as a cornerstone of leading a spiritual life. The Buddha stated that a life of commitment to non-harming is essential if we want to make progress in meditation. He said that trying to practice meditation without a foundation of non-harming is like trying to cross a river in a rowboat without first untying the boat. You won't get very far. When we meditate, this becomes clear to us. I'm not going to ask you to try the other experiment, the experiment of reflecting on some time that you caused harm and seeing what it does to the mind, because I actually don't want your minds to go there. (laughs) Because what you find, if um, you do that, is you find that if we've been engaging in harmful practices that 
it makes the mind heavy and turbulent, not pliable for meditation. So when we understand sila deeply, we see that the effects of our actions live long in our minds and that they affect our mental condition depending on the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of these acts. I'm going to give a whole talk on sila in a few days, so I'm not going to say a whole much more about it tonight. But I do want to say that by being willing to sit here and face your heart and your mind and to see clearly where you've caused suffering, because for many people this does come up when we meditate, this naturally moves us towards more commitment to non-harming, to taking more care with our actions. And this is our gift to ourselves, and to the world. And by practicing the five precepts here, we are developing that quality of sila, of virtue. We're strengthening it. There's a story that tells of a monk who, after 24 years, concluded that over all the time he had made no spiritual progress worth mentioning. He was so depressed and desperate that he decided to end his life. He got a thick rope, climbed up a tree, tied the rope around a sturdy branch, and put the noose around his neck. Just as he was about to jump, it occurred to him that over all those 24 years, He had never broken a single one of the many precepts to which he had bound himself. This knowledge filled him with such a powerful rush of happiness that he at once climbed down from the tree and went on with his practice. The feeling of happiness made it possible for him to achieve such a concentrated meditation that after a few years he reached enlightenment. By strengthening our commitment to non-harming, we bring happiness to our minds. And this affects our practice. So, generosity, sila or ethical conduct, non-harming. The third parami is renunciation or restraint. Renunciation is about being content with little, being happy with what is given to us. And again, we see in the same way as um, Sila and Donna lighten the mind, we see that renunciation also lightens our minds. When we see that we don't need so much to be happy, our minds are lighter and happier. When we see that we don't need the world to be a certain way in order to be happy, Our minds lighten up. They're freer. We get a lot of chances to practice renunciation here. You gave up to come here. You gave up the comforts of your usual life. When you're here, you don't uh, get to take showers when you want to. You don't get to wear scented products if you want to. When you're in the hall, you have to stay even if you don't want to. The environment isn't always as you would like it to be. 
this really gives us a chance to see how happy we can be with little, with things as they are. I think this community living is um, great for bringing us up against our attachments. It's a good fire for cooking our practice. We learn to sit through our aversions and our attachments, restrain ourselves. That's another word for this parmi of renunciation is restraint. We learn to restrain ourselves, not to write that note, not to talk. And just the many little ways that things don't go our way around here each day gives us a chance to practice renunciation. Like today, when I went for a little walk, I like to go in the woods sometimes and work on my talks, and there's a rock at the lake, which I consider my rock. And um, (laughs) I think I'm not the only one who considers it their rock. (laughs) So I walked along the path today, and I got to my rock, and somebody was on my rock. And, um, you know, the first thought is I wanted to sit on my rock and write my talk there. But then I found another um, rock to sit on in the woods. And a few thoughts later, actually, my mind went to, may that yogi on the rock there be really nourished by his time in the sun. So you can see the different kind of levels of freedom in the mind from, I really need that rock to sit on to write my talk, (laughs) to, may that yogi sitting on on that rock be nourished by the sun. This is renunciation. So many times during your day, you probably get a chance here. You know, your walking spot is taken, your favorite cup is taken, your place in the um, dining room is taken, whatever. It's a chance to practice renunciation. So the next parami is patience. Not exactly stressed in our country here. In the continuing um, report of anti-Dharma statements, I found one uh, a couple years ago. Apparently there's a a company that goes by the initials SBC, and it said, at SBC, impatience is a virtue. (laughs) (laughs) That's really like... It kind of um, sums up the uh, um, dominant paradigm here in this uh, good old U.S. of A. You know, impatience is a virtue. (laughs) So um, it might not be a quality that um, some of us us have well-developed. I know it's certainly one that I work on quite a bit. It's probably one of the paramis that that I most work with. So let's talk about patience a little bit. First of all, patience implies a certain steadiness or constancy in our practice. So it's not about gritting our teeth or waiting for something to end or begin, but just being with the process with steadiness, with equanimity. Just being willing to be here and continue to be here. So patience is really about being present with now rather than focusing on the future. Another aspect of patience is understanding that the spiritual path 
is a long-term project. It's said in the early years here at IMS that they once received a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. Like you can add water and suddenly have results. <laughs> I found myself hoping that this person didn't come here <laughs> and get disappointed. <laughs> Most of us know that this process of self-transformation takes time and patience and rarely happens instantly. So part of patience is just having um, this patience with the whole process of transformation within ourselves. As I mentioned, the Buddha had to live through four incalculable ages and a hundred thousand eons to perfect these qualities, to get things right. That's a while. This suggests a radical acceptance of our experience in the moment of our process as it unfolds in its own time. One of my favorite poems that reflects this quality of patience with the process of transformation is from Ryokan, the um, Japanese hermit poet, Zen poet. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) Isn't that just light? Another related quote is, I heard that the Dalai Lama once said, you know, you Westerners, you always want to get everything so quickly. Perhaps a little change every decade is enough. So we may not solve all of our deepest issues today or this week. Can we be patient with this process of transformation? So as we sit it out here, continue on our journey, we get chance to develop patience. For example, when we're in the hall and we just are dying for the sitting to end. It's like, oh, when are they going to ring the bell? Chance to practice patience. I am, um, I try to consider all things that Um, slow me down as my patients practice. I live in the um, country, up in the hills with my partner. And from our town up to the house where we live, there's a road, a country road that's kind of windy. And so for six and a half miles, there's um, no passing zone from the little town all the way to my house. One of my vices is that I like to drive fast. And so... uh, I get chances to practice patience on that road. Often, you know, I'm coming up on somebody. (laughs) It's like, Rebecca, don't tailgate. (laughs) This is patience practice. So we can use whatever um, quote-unquote obstacles we find in our way 
as a way to practice patience. One other way we can practice patience here on retreat is that when we meet the deeply rooted patterns of conditioning of our minds that return over and over again, if we can meet them with uh, some sense of friendliness, kind of like, hello, my dear old friend. This is patience. Patience with these Patterns that keep coming back. When we're able to include these struggles and include our suffering as part of our practice and not something to get rid of, we're developing patience. One of my favorite patience stories. In the 60s and 70s, the Chan monk Dei Chun lived in rural Tennessee where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with a nearby university. When Dei Chun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors happened by and said, you'd better cut that thing down or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said Dei Chun. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the trees an enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him him work day after day, showed up with chainsaws, offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Dei Chung. I do it my way. This went on for months with such regularity that if the neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, 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 of Dei Chung on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. It became a phenomenon, a cause for conversation. And before too long, this strange old Chinese fellow had become a member of the neighborhood. On the day the tree finally fell, with a crash that shook all the houses on his street, one of Dei Chung's friends asked him, So what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Dei Chung. (laughs) He later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. To balance patience, we need effort and energy. The Pali word is virya, the next parami. Effort is mentioned over and over in the Buddhist teachings. It's one part of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the five controlling faculties and one of the ten perfections. I've heard it appears on more lists than any other quality that the Buddha mentioned. In the commentaries, it said that energy is considered necessary for developing all of the rest of the paramis. The Buddha said, far better it is to live a day making effort in meditation than 100 years without. 
As I said this morning, effort or energy is really about learning balance. And that we often learn it by uh, falling out of balance. Going to the extreme of um, tightening or trying to control our practice or going to the extreme of um, not doing much at all. There's a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya about this paradox of effort. A deva, a deva, a deva is a heavenly being. A deva says to the Buddha, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And the Buddha says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. The deva, How did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? The Buddha, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the Deva says, At long last I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. This... And discourse points to the extremes that we can go to of pushing forward, striving, which doesn't work, you got whirled about, or staying in one place, not really doing anything. That didn't work either. He sank. And so we see ourselves swing back and forth, and we learn to tell for ourselves when we're getting out of balance. If it's too tight, we need to be more relaxed and receptive. If it's too loose, we need to find our commitment, find our commitment to our process. We also need to remember that right effort may look quite different for each one of us and may look different at different times in our practice. It's not like you just get it and you're done. It's like we need to be um, skillful with our effort. So sometimes it is skillful to sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. Just do that. But sometimes it's skillful to um, practice differently, to practice in a more relaxed manner. And we often discuss this in our interviews. I think finding right effort takes um, a lot of sincerity Honest, honesty in looking at what does my practice really need right now. You're all making incredible effort if you're still here. There's a story that um, Jack Cornfield was once asked. Um, he was teaching a retreat and somebody's friend was on the retreat and a couple times the the person would say, well, how's my friend doing? And Jack would say, well, he's, you know, he's doing quite good. And um, finally the person said, well, what do you mean by he's doing quite good? And Jack said, he's still here. So every time you sit through difficulty and you keep going, you're developing this quality of effort. Every time you decide to forego that nap, 
and to come in the hall instead, you're developing effort. Now, related to effort, there's another quality, another parami, the parami of resolution or determination. And they're fairly um, close to each other, the two. Determination is that quality of will, of stick to itness. And again, obviously, you've developed that quality to some extent if you're still here. You've used your will or your determination to come here because you feel like it'll be helpful for your practice and you keep using your will and your determination to continue to practice when times are rough. Determination is really important for keeping us steady on the path. It's like a good strong motor on a boat. If we have weak determination, our practice will kind of have a stop-and-go quality. According to the uh, Burmese master Upandita, we're a bit like chameleons who take a few steps and then look around a little bit, take a few more steps, and it takes them forever to get anywhere. So if our determination isn't strong, we're a little bit like that kind of stop-go, stop-go. Or we're like a, a ship at sea without a motor. We get blown away by the winds. So determination and will are very important parts of our spiritual path. They keep us going when the times are rough. Resolution is um, something that we can develop. Determination is something we can develop. It's like a muscle that can be strengthened, exercised. And one way of developing resolution is to really know why are we doing this. What is our aspiration? A clear understanding of what is motivating us can help us to um, strengthen our resolve, our steadiness, our will to practice. The thing we have to be careful with will and determination, though, is how we apply it. Many of us can apply our will kind of like a whip. I know that when I first practiced, I had very strong determination, but I also applied it sometimes with a certain harsh quality that um, that isn't uh, so skillful. So my way of looking at resolution these days is um, um, determination with gentleness. So thinking of how we apply our determination in a way that's gentle rather than harsh. a story that I think um, reflects this quality of resolution. One of my teachers at Tashi Jong was Amtrin Togden. He is a great yogin who lived previously at some place in Tibet. This place is a very steep place between cliffs. His guru put him in a high mountainous place for nine years. His practice developed well and everything was quite easy. The place had beautiful views and a lot of space and nothing changed much. He went to see his teacher and said that now he needed a horrible place to meditate because everything in his previous place was too good. So his teacher sent him to a small cave in a cleft between mountains. 
The sun never came into the cave, and it was very cold and damp. It was near a big waterfall and about 14,000 feet up, a place with a lot of bad smells and very damp. The wind roared down the cleft and made it impossible to light a fire. His cave was full of bird poop. <laughs> That's not what it says. <laughs> He's, he stayed there for five years, and his practice really improved. Now any difficulty doesn't worry him. Whatever occurs is nothing to him. This is an excellent example for us to follow. We should keep this in mind. So I read this at an, another retreat I was in recently, and, and the next day at the question and answer, somebody said, they raised their hand and said, do, we, do you think we all need to go to the cave? You know, do we, do we need to do that in order to um, find liberation? And I said, um, you know what? I think for some people, this place is the cave. (laughs) (laughs) So, onwards with our paramis. The next parami is truthfulness. And I find it interesting that truthfulness is its own parami after it's actually covered in the morality parami, you know, the fourth precept about um, speaking the truth. It must be quite important then. And I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking, maybe we need truthfulness in all aspects of our life if we're going to search for truth. So really important. We want to be here to see the truth of things, right? So here, um, one way to practice truthfulness is obviously not to tell lies. But we're not talking a whole lot here, so um, that helps. (laughs) (laughs) But it also can be interesting to reflect on whether we're being totally truthful in our interviews. Are we exaggerating or are we omitting information? It's said that telling our teachers the truth in um, our uh, conversations with them is one of the five requirements to make progress in practice. Mahasi Sayada said that. But in a larger way, and not just looking at telling the truth, we develop truthfulness here by being willing to see the truth of life, the sorrow and the beauty, by being willing to see Um, the nature of life, constant change, our vulnerability in the face of change, by having a commitment to seeing the truth of life, to see clearly, even if it makes us uncomfortable. There's also the truth about ourselves on a personality level, which Marcia touched on last night, that one part of meditation practice is opening to deeper and deeper levels of truth about our personalities, which is usually bad news. (laughs) Ruth Dennison, a Vipassana teacher from Germany, says, Self-knowledge, my darlings, is always bad news. Or Trungpa Rinpoche called on practice insult after insult. (laughs) There's some truth here. You know, the parts of ourselves that we like, we are happy to see, and the parts of ourselves that 
we don't like so much, you know. We have our ways of denying, hiding, projecting. Many uh, defense strategies we have from seeing these parts of ourselves. But when we sit down and meditate, for most people, or we at least hope this happens because it's a good thing, for most of us we start to see some of our shadows, the parts of ourselves that aren't quite so pretty. And this is good news because bringing these parts of ourselves into awareness is a way to purify and deepen ourselves. It's actually quite a relief. It's so much work to um, repress the more um, unfavorable parts of our personality. One yogi came in and told me that she was having like really intense hating thoughts. I was like, great, I do too. You know, it's like we all do. It's like letting that come up into awareness and then it doesn't have to drive us. Then it doesn't have to cause harm. So we have to be really gentle with this truthfulness. Or we can become a little bit grim. Some people say we're a little too serious around here. Pema Jodhran calls our journey, um, our, our path, a journey of gentle honesty. I like that. Journey of gentle honesty. Which leads to the next parami of metta, of kindness, loving kindness. We need this quality of metta to balance out the paramis of resolution and effort and truthfulness. We can crash and burn without this gentle quality of heart. We need metta for the long haul. Metta is really about opening and softening our hearts, learning to love ourselves, love experience, accept it, let it be, accept ourselves. There's beauty and power in a heart filled with kindness. It's an essential foundation for our spiritual practice. So when we sit here and we meet our experience with kindness, meet our unpleasant aspects with kindness, we're developing that metta. Without kindness, our practice can get dry and grim. And with this soft quality of heart, it can be moist and sweet. So we balance our clear seeing with this gentle quality of metta. Two more paramis, the parami of uh, equanimity and the parami of wisdom. Equanimity is that quality of a balanced mind, a mind that can move gracefully through this world of change, a mind that's non-reactive to life's ups and downs, a mind that's not dependent on conditions for happiness, We've all probably learned here that um, in this chaos in our minds, there is a pretty basic theme, 
And that's that we want to grasp at pleasantness and we want to avoid unpleasantness. This is how our minds are deeply conditioned. We develop equanimity here by engaging with that reactivity of mind. So we do this by working with Vedana or feeling tone that we talked about in the instructions yesterday, the pleasant, unpleasantness, and neutral. Or we do it by turning our attention directly to all the forms of desire and all the forms of aversion that arise in our practice. So every time you sit through unpleasant sensations, working with unpleasant sensations in the body, you're developing equanimity. And each time that you let go of fantasies in the mind and return to the breath, you're developing equanimity. You're developing a mind that's not dependent on keeping pleasantness or getting rid of unpleasantness in order to be happy. This is a practice of freedom. There's a story of a teacher. This is from a book of um, Sharon Salzberg, a story of a teacher who really exemplifies this kind of uh, equanimous mind. In the book, she writes, One of my teachers, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, called Kempo by his students, was one of the many thousands of Tibetans who fled from their country in 1959 because of the Chinese invasion of Tibet and the terrible religious persecution that followed. In Tibet, Kenpo had been a high lama and an heir to all the sacred teachings of the different schools and lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. During a retreat he taught in the United States many years after he left Tibet, he began telling us the story of how he had left his family behind, not knowing if he would ever see them again, as he set out for India with about 70 other people. One night as the group traveled through the mountains, Chinese soldiers ambushed them, showering them with machine gun bullets. Only five people survived the attack and escaped on foot through treacherous Himalayan passes to India. Soon after arriving, Kenpo went to Calcutta and found a place to sleep in the Buddhist monastery. He spoke to us about begging for pennies on the streets of Calcutta just so he could have a cup of tea to drink. It was heart-wrenching to hear Kenpo speak about these traumatic circumstances, the Chinese persecution, the humiliation, torture, and death of so many Tibetans, the sorrow of leaving loved ones behind, the slaughter of Kenpo's companions, the sheer physical brutality of the escape. The image of this teacher, whom I love so much, begging for pennies, deprived of all physical comforts, was overwhelming for me to hear. As I began to cry, I noticed that several other people in the room were also crying. Just at that point, Kempo finished up his story of begging in Calcutta with a phrase, and I was very happy. My mind came to an abrupt stop. Very happy? Did he say very happy? I could scarcely believe he had said that. The man was bereft, poverty-stricken, a refugee. How could he say he was very happy? As Kempo went on, he talked about being sustained through all these events and sudden turns of fate by the truth of the Buddha's teachings. He had gone from being an esteemed religious teacher in Tibet with great distinction and honor, addressing multitudes of spiritual aspirants, 
defining himself suddenly begging in the hot streets of Calcutta surrounded by poverty and hopelessness. Then later on he went from the crowds of India to the United States where he was again revered as a high teacher. So many unexpected ups and downs, who can describe them, Kempo said. Isn't life like a series of dreams within a vast dreamlike mirage? After his talk, my mind was still reeling. Every so often, if we are fortunate, we catch a glimpse of a quality of happiness or freedom in another human being that is not bound to conditions, that sustains them even through extraordinary suffering. Very happy. So the last parami, wisdom, seeing things as they are, understanding the nature of life, often spoken about as the three characteristics, seeing the three characteristics of dukkha, anicca, and anatta. What I want to emphasize with this parami is that in Buddhism, what is considered important is to see these truths for ourselves in our own mind-body process, to experience them directly, not intellectually. And that's what you're doing here, even if you don't realize it. When you are with the changing sensations of breath, you are seeing anicca, impermanence. When you notice how you suffer from the reactivity of your mind, you are seeing dukkha. When you're able to be with your experience clearly arising and passing away without sticking to it, you're understanding anatta. There's a chance to develop wisdom in every moment that we're here, all the time, not just on the cushion. The lunch line can teach us so much about desire, impermanence, dukkha. So wisdom... Um, the development of wisdom is part of every moment of our practice here. So even if you can't follow 50 breaths in a row, you're developing these paramis, these qualities of a fully awakened one here on retreat. You're developing generosity through the gift of your practice. You're developing sila by being able to look how, at how you cause suffering and by making a commitment to non-harming. You're developing renunciation by giving up sense pleasures of the outside world and learning how to work skillfully with your desires and aversions. You're developing patience by persevering through difficulty when times are rough and by accepting your process as it unfolds. You're developing effort by noticing when your balance is off and adjusting. You're developing resolution by calling on determination to sustain you through difficulty. You're developing truthfulness by being willing to look at the truth of your life and yourself. You're developing metta by bringing gentleness to your investigation. You're developing equanimity by working with pleasant and unpleasantness, 
by having the courage to face your reactivity. And you're developing wisdom by investigating for yourself directly the nature of life. May these Buddha qualities flourish and grow on your retreat. I'd like to end with um, a quote from the Zen master Sang Sun in a thousand, a book called Thousand Peaks. And he's talking about um, the bell in the beginning. Originally, this metal was ugly rocks. Then the rocks were heated for a long time over a very hot fire until finally they became liquid. Now this liquid will be poured into a mold and will take the shape of a big, beautiful bell. And when it cools, someone will strike the bell and the beautiful sound will fill the whole universe. We are all like rocks. And when we practice hard, we heat up our hearts, making a big hot flame, which melts our condition, situation, and opinion until we become like molten metal, ready to assume the shape of a great bodhisattva who, when struck with the cry for help, makes a big deep sound which resonates and fills the whole universe and makes everyone happy. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you.